another episode of You Might Love This. It's a show and tell podcast. I'm Max. I'm Cassie. And today we have a guest, and that guest is someone who joined us recently for an episode of our old podcast project, and who uh, we joined for an episode of her podcast. This is somebody who uh, reached out to us while we were working on our, our previous show, uh, and has a lot of expertise when it comes to history. Everybody, please welcome Kina. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. We're greatly excited to have you. And Kina, your show is Historical AF, correct? Yes. And tell us a little bit about your show, what you do, and what you're interested in. All right. So my podcast is Historical AF, and it's where we dive into the funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. And mostly the idea is that it always breaks my heart when people say that history is boring. And I always hate when people say that history is their least favorite subject. It's like a dagger to my heart because <laughs> I love mm-hmm. it so much. So I love the weird, obscure stories about history that are just so hilarious that people don't really know about. So it was just a way for me to kind of get that out into the world and awesome. definitely get my shirt on. Because so history is weird. And and that's probably, I mean, people are weird and people have been <laughs> weird for 20, 30,000 years on this planet. It just reminds me of all those TikToks of people at like 3 a.m. going through rabbit holes on Wikipedia about weird things in history. Mm-hmm. They're very entertaining. So Kina, you have a fascination with a, a specific topic in history. And what would you describe that as? Yes. So I've always been a huge history nerd. I think my earliest memories as a kid were digging in the ground thinking I was finding dinosaurs, but they ended up being chicken bones. (laughs) So I've always been a history nerd. And when I went to college, I kind of got discouraged because they always told you, oh, you'll never have a job in history. You shouldn't do that. So I actually majored in psychology. But then for like seven years, I was a librarian and I was doing that thing, but I just felt the tug of history. So I went back to grad school and got a degree in public history. And day one, they're like, you should have had a thesis topic yesterday. So I was panicking and I was like, what am I going to write my thesis on? (laughs) Wait, seriously? Yeah, it was horrifying. (laughs) Wait, and what were you going for a master's or a PhD? A master's. Yeah, we had a paper due on the day one. That's insane. And it was, and he ended up being like the cutest, cuddly. I mean, he's terrifying, but at the end of it, you're like, oh, I love him. And yeah. his name is Dr. Money Han, and they actually just named a scholarship for after him at Yale, wow. I think. So it's a big oh, deal. Wow. He's this like, was your oh, advisor? Uh, he's just one of my professors. Yeah, he's just, he was a big deal. But he's, I think, the leading scholar in Civil War history right now. Wow. Like, he's oh, a real me. big deal. So he was really intimidating. But if yeah. you passed this class and he liked you, he invited you to his house to have sherry. Oh, that's how you know. That's how yeah. you know. Because he says real historians drink sherry. And then he wouldn't call you by your name until after you graduated and you were actually a historian. So oh I was just surprised my whole career until I actually graduated. But while I was thinking, I was like, what do I like in history? And then I thought, well, I want to do my psychology because I worked so hard on that. And I was looking at just like funny things in history. And it kind of led me to hysteria because I also have a minor in gender studies. I'm really fascinated. Mm-hmm. Oh, neat. So I was thinking about like hysteria, about basically if a woman did anything, they're like, oh, she's hysterical, throw her away. Yep. And as I was <laughs> like, literally, your husband could just sign something and be like, she's hysterical, take her away, please. Ah, like, she's challenging patriarchal norms, throw yeah. her away. She's got hysteria. 
Which, so I was looking into that and I stumbled on an article that talked about the Arkansas Lunatic Asylum. And I'm from mm. Arkansas and I have a psychology degree from Arkansas and nobody had ever once mentioned that we had an insane asylum. So that really kind of planted the seed and that ended up being my specialty and what my thesis was in. So that's kind of what got me towards that. Awesome. Didn't necessarily- and if people want to read your thesis, what is the title? Uh, Arkansas's Lost Asylum. Or are, oops, I forgot my own thing. Arkansas's Forgotten Asylum. <laughs> Okay. It's okay. I've messed up my thesis too. <laughs> oh man, I what was funny is I started this program thinking, oh, okay, this is the right time. I'm gonna do it. And then second semester we got orders to move to Texas. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a panic thing. So I, I finished a semester earlier early and I ended up writing my thesis in two months. Do Good not recommend you. Do Crap. not recommend. <laughs> no, no. Like, no wonder I'm deli- like I just can't, I'm delirious thinking about it because I wrote it so fast. I look like a serial killer. I had note cards all over the wall because we had moved out. My husband moved before me. He had three months to move. So mm-hmm. the house is empty except for a chair and a bed and like a table. So I had one whole wall just cards with things connecting it trying to figure out my thesis. Oh. Wow, the classic, <laughs> the classic image. The classic yeah. trope. Yeah. Yeah. Going nuts. They're like, are you okay? I'm like, not really. (laughs) 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 And it was good. And I have my degree. But yeah, it was really interesting to throw myself in so hard, so fast and think about only this for so long. And it was really kind of fortuitous that I found this subject because it's really hard when you have to write a thesis or a dissertation because you have to do something nobody's ever done before. And it's 2020 and everybody's done everything. So I was so lucky I stumbled on this because there's only been two or three journal articles ever written on it before and they were all from people that worked there so they were very biased yeah (laughs) i really lucked out okay well that's good Mm -hmm. so tell us about well do you want to talk to us about uh i don't know you you go ahead (laughs) (laughs) well it's a really interesting topic Mostly because Arkansas didn't have anything to take care of the mentally ill in about 1873 The citizens of Arkansas were mad and there's Mm. newspaper articles, people saying how embarrassing it was that there was nothing to help people. The only thing we had was a pauper law that said that if you were mentally ill and you didn't have anybody, you would either have to go to a poorhouse or a jail. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. And then by that time, it was overflowing and there was just no way to take care of anybody. And people ended up on the streets and the jails couldn't do anything like they were trying, but it was Really interesting to see the, it was the people of Arkansas that made this movement happen, not the government. So that was really different from other states. Was it normal for states to make these initiatives to build asylums? Yes. Originally, a lot of asylums were state funded. So Hmm. it really started on the East Coast and then it kind of moved over. So by the time 1873 hit, most states had one. It was... okay. So Arkansas knew that because there's newspapers and a lot of people that were rich in Arkansas, they were sent to like Kansas. So they're like, well, these people are getting help. Why can't the rest of us get help? So the state funded mm-hmm. once they were getting free health care. And at this time, there was a movement for actual mental health care, which is what my specialty was. Mm-hmm. I was trying to prove that Arkansas used a type of treatment called moral management. And it was... Mm. Uh, it's so silly when you talk about it because you think of Bethlehem in England and this, the idea of people chained to walls and, you know, cold, dark rooms being left alone and treated like zoo animals because people actually bought tickets to watch them. It was horrible. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, it was so bad. <laughs> History is so sad sometimes. 
So around 1800s, early 1800s, this guy named Philippe Pinnell, yeah, Philippe Pinnell and William Tuke at the same time, but not together because they were in different states, came up with this idea of like, hey, let's get rid of the chains and the abuse and maybe treat people with kindness and like mm-hmm. people. And it was mm-hmm. revolutionary. Wasn't this uh, similar to the idea of, um, oh, you know, when they uh, built the Eastern State Penitentiary, I think it was like versus like a, a dungeon for mm-hmm. prison. It was seen as, oh, well, we're going to this is going to reform people. So the intentions are good. Yeah. But how it's executed really, really matters. Mm-hmm. And it was the whole enlightenment. You know, people yeah. are starting to think about humanitarian efforts and philosophy. So around that time, that's when people are like, yeah, let's just treat them with kindness and patience. And they wanted to treat people with recreational activities and conversation. And they started creating these retreats. So they would go out into the middle of the woods where you had fresh air and activities. So they'd have farming and they'd have cows to milk and they'd have things to sow. And Hmm. it was a way to get away from the stressors of everyday life in the city. So Mm -hmm. they were like, oh, people are getting better, which, of course, if you're suffering from anxiety Mm. or stress, you know, a little little retreat probably helps a little. (laughs) So this this revolutionary treatment actually started to yield positive results. Yes. And people were getting really excited about it because this was the first time anybody thought, well, maybe we can actually treat mental illness. Of course, they Mm -hmm. didn't call it mental illness back then, but Mm -hmm. maybe we can help these people. And then this guy named Thomas Kirkbride comes along and is like, I think we can cure them. And he's like, mic drop. But he decides that the building itself should be the treatment for the mental illness. So he has this plan of creating these giant asylums that are well ventilated, have a lot of sunlight, and they have a lot Mm -hmm. of recreational areas. They have bowling alleys and swimming pools and salons and massage parlors. And so he created this plan to make Kirkbride Asylums, and they were popping up all over the country. So Arkansas was actually a Kirkbride Asylum, which is what surprised me, (laughs) is that Arkansas put a lot of money into that. And it was anything that's Kirkbride is going to be exactly identical. So that's kind of exciting for me because there are some that are still standing. So I can fascinating of ones that are, you know, still standing or falling apart, you know, and Mm -hmm. I could see what Arkansas would have looked like. The idea is they'd pick an area where there was nothing there. So outside of a city. So this was outside of Arkansas or uh, Arkansas, outside of Little Rock. And it was, you know, trees and paths and it looks like a fancy hotel resort type thing. It does. It kind of reminds me of like Stanley Hotel, like top of yeah. a hilltop. Very, very pretty. Yeah. Well, and it seems like a really good environment uh, to uh, to recover in. Yeah. And it was a good plan. It's just, it's a lot of money. <laughs> and that was yeah. the problem with a lot of them is that they wanted to help, but they never had the funding to keep yeah. it going. Um, so this particular one... By 1963, it was demolished because it was falling apart. So it's really sad that it's gone. I get why it's gone. It's replaced now by the biggest hospital in Little Rock. But <sighs> So what, what made this the forgotten asylum? It's just kind of interesting. So in 1963, it gets bulldozed and it gets replaced with the University of Arkansas of Medical Sciences. And a lot of the people that worked at the asylum, which at that point had turned into... So right after it was Arkansas Lunatic Asylum, then it was Arkansas Hospital for Nervous Diseases, and then it turned into Arkansas State Hospital. So at that point, it was the state hospital. 
And deinstitutionalization was sweeping the country in the 60s. And mm-hmm. they were going more with like community-based programs and state-based programs. So people kind of just forgot about it. So anybody that worked there at this point in time have all passed away. A lot of people didn't really write anything down. And all the documents and photos, everything got kind of shoved away in archives around the state. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got to them, they were so dusty. Nobody had looked at them in decades. So it was kind of a, once that generation is gone, you know, mm-hmm. nobody knows to look for it. It just kind of got forgotten. Interesting. So uh, were there, so what kind of uh, issues were associated with uh, not enough funding for these insane asylums? Well, Arkansas is an interesting case. So they passed the law in 1873 to build this asylum and they put aside a large chunk of money $50,000 to build the asylum which is about a million dollars today okay yeah so that's like a 2,003 percent inflation rate (laughs) from this time I was like oh the inflation calculator became my friend so that's a lot of money but then Mm -hmm. right after that Arkansas was like hit with this perfect storm of political corruption it had a bankrupted treasury and then in 1874 the Brooks-Baxter war hit in Arkansas so there was absolutely no money to actually do anything for 10 years so Mm -hmm. by 1883 they finally figured out enough money to do that but even then they were the building was so incredibly large and they want, like, let's see, I don't know how to put this. So they, the day that it opened, it was already full. So by the third oh, wow. month that it was open, they had like a waiting list of hundreds. So oh, wow. they just could not take care of the amount of people that they needed to yeah. take care of. Really unfortunate. I think they really tried. Mm-hmm. If you read like the diaries of the, you know, first superintendents, you know, they really wanted to help, but they had an entire state you know, yeah, of people all just trying to get in. And it was a, a difference. There's the criminally insane that were put in by like legislation. And then you have your mm-hmm. people that are trying to, you know, admit their own families. And it was, it was just a really sad situation. Did they ever overcrowd the hospital or no? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was oh. constantly overcrowded. And okay. the idea, it should be nice because the way it is, is it, the main entrance is this giant grand area and has a lot of common rooms. And then it has two arms to go out either side. And it mm-hmm. was kind of designed so the more, the way they put it is kind of kind of cruel, but they're like the louder, more agitated ones would be at the far end. And then mm-hmm. the more quieter patients would be towards the common areas. And mm-hmm. the idea is that everybody had plenty of room. Everybody had their own rooms. Everybody had time to like, you know, go to all those recreation things and have like their own time. But it was just, they were packing people in the rooms and it just never worked out the way they said or what they really intended it to. Yeah. And so the the state of Arkansas has fully moved to community-based mental health programs? It did until about 2008. The Arkansas State Hospital was rebuilt. And it's technically on the site of where the other one was. It's a little smaller. But now it's mostly for criminally insane. So, okay. it, but yeah, I actually got to go there and talk to some people that work there now and you know, they've all heard rumors of stuff and they talk about mm-hmm. it. But they're still, even today, they say that they don't get enough money to keep people there. So that's the problem mm-hmm. we run into now is that people's run- money runs out and they have to let them go even when they know they're not ready to be released, especially the younger mm-hmm. people. It's just really, really sad. Yeah. 
So I'm curious about what, if any, lessons from the Kirkbride plan were taken forward into mental health treatment uh, as it exists today, or uh, whether that's something that, that you learned in your research. I think it really sparked an idea that people could be treated and that there is something to what they were saying because it turned into occupational therapy. So mm-hmm. learning to do things. I mean, their idea of occupational therapy was go work on this farm for free for a while. And that wasn't too great. Yeah. Free labor thing. But it yeah. really kind of sparked it. And I think people had a bad taste in their mouth in the 60s. and was like, get rid of it. It's awful. And that was just because they didn't have the money. And at that point, they're scrambling just to make ends meet. And mm-hmm. there's just psychology and psychiatry were so new at that point, And it was evolving so incredibly fast. So I think that they were all trying to say, oh, we're we're better than that. But I think they got a lot of what became what we know today in mental health came mm-hmm. from that. But I think they just had a bad taste in their mouth because we're like, oh, it's awful. But I think they're desperate. So when was the date that you said that this place opened? It was 1883. 1883. And you said that they, they uh, had patients do basically legalized slavery? Yeah, yeah. And that's an interesting thing. So I am writing a book on this now so I can dive into the things that I couldn't get to in my thesis. Mm -hmm. And there was an interesting thing that I found that in the 50s, they had a work farm, which were not uncommon for poor houses too, that they would Mm -hmm. have a work farm associated with it. So they were sending the men to the work farms. And then in the 50s, out of nowhere, it got shut down. And they made it a law immediately that they, they could no longer work at those. And mm-hmm. if you know anything about government, nothing happens that fast. So I'm really no. interested to know what happened to make it get shut down so fast. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to really dig into that because it seems really interesting. Do you have any early theories? I imagine either the conditions were so horrible and then people found out about it and wanted to shut it down before people like the press found out. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, people died. I'm not sure. But again, mm-hmm. they, when it comes to people in poor houses or insane asylums, a lot of them are abandoned, don't have family, or they're kind of just written off by their families. So even if something had happened mm-hmm. to people, whether or not people would have even fought for them is mm-hmm. really questionable. I'm curious, um, and this is just me speculating. Um, I don't I don't know <laughs> the facts, but I'm curious if... Um, there was any incentive for the state or states in the South following um, the abolition of slavery to uh, build these asylums uh, for multiple reasons. And one, maybe, again, just speculation, being that they could get some free labor out of patients. That's a really good theory. And at the same time, the prison system in Arkansas was doing the same thing. And Mm -hmm. the prisoners actually built the capital. So Arkansas has an exact replica of the nation's capital building. And it was built by the prisoners here. So it's, I would say yes. And it started out with them being self-sustaining. And then mm-hmm. work farms would be like making your own food for the asylum so it could help with the money problems. Mm-hmm. But I think by the 50s, it was kind of they were they were selling it. So I'm not really mm-hmm. sure. I, I can't imagine it was legal. <laughs> but yeah. Well, 13th Amendment, if you're a prisoner, mm-hmm. it's totally fine. 
And I don't know if uh, a people in a, insane asylums would be considered in in that demographic. Yeah, unfortunately, they were even referred to as inmates, so they weren't really oh, no. much more wow. than prisoners. So it's oh, it's so sad, especially researching. It's just they just say inmate, and I kept changing it because I'm like, I can't write that. That bothers me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just so sad, and you see. And the number one email I get, so I have a website and it's Arkansas or yeah, Arkansas And then I have a discussion board and an email you can email me. And the only thing I ever get are email from people saying, My aunt was there or my grandma was there or my grandpa was there. Can you please tell me what you know or can you tell me oh, if wow. they were happy? And I, I came on telling them, like, I, I don't know because most of the records were destroyed either mm-hmm. by oh, no. you know, floods or fires or you know, when it got destroyed, nobody knows where it went. So there's only a few years I actually found where I could actually see people. And then the state hospital that's here today, they have a big book, but they're not very keen on letting me <laughs> let me see it. So it's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they got some bad press recently. Um, somebody oh. somebody escaped, and it was like this whole thing. And they were afraid that my research was going to make them look worse. And I kept on telling them, like, well, they were like, can you make it seem nicer? And I'm like, I'm not going to change history for you. But <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm like, compared to other states, we did pretty good. So I don't think you should be that upset. They had, they wanted me to come talk about it at an event and then like an hour before they changed their mind and canceled on me. I was like, okay, but mm-hmm. I get it. They're worried. But I was like, there was, I think it was somewhere on the East Coast, one of the asylums was so poor that they didn't have clothes for anybody. Oh my God. They were just naked and it was like winter and it, oh, it's such, it's a, it's a sad history. Like, I find mental health a fascinating history just because of how fast it's evolved and Mm -hmm. what it is today happened so incredibly fast because psychiatry, it it has not been around. It's one of the newest sciences, so that's always fascinating to me. Are lobotomies still allowed or have they stopped? Do you know? I think, I'm pretty sure they don't do them anymore. Mm -hmm. I know they do electric shock therapy still. Which is, yeah. That's disappointing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a a new treatment that uses magnetic pulses Mm -hmm. to replace the electric shock. And that seems to work a lot, especially with mania and manic depression. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's a, again, it's, we're still learning. And yeah, well, it's it's interesting how, um, how, like, like you said, how fast mental health care has evolved within Mm -hmm. the last just decade or a few decades. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting to see perceptions on mental health care just from a, like, uh, people's perceptions. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I've noticed, especially like with my, my own parents, um, mental health care is a sensitive topic and, um, it's, it's very difficult to get them to go get like, take care of themselves mm-hmm. um, just because of the stigma that is just starting to chip away. Yeah. Um, and, and also just probably bad memories of, of things that relatives had had to uh, experience like shock therapy. It's just, I find it very fascinating. Yeah. And I yeah. did look it up really quick. The last one in the United States was 1967. So I'm not sure with okay. around the world, but in the United States, it's not practiced. The lobotomy, but electric shock okay. is still done. 
Okay. It's a lot more humane now than it ever was. Okay. And that was, oh. yeah. And when I went to the state hospital and talked to them, they're like, oh, we still have some chains from when they did electric shock. And I was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, it's, uh, it's startling, but. Yeah. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the de, um, the process of doing research on something where so much of the records have been lost. Yeah. Which is, which is super fascinating. I mean, obviously some of that is 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 um, natural disasters like you mentioned, but I'm still yeah. really curious about how you find information when there's so little of it that remains. Yeah, it's actually so much fun. It's like a treasure hunt. So you start, like for me, I started with, journals so arkansas most states have a state historical journal and i started with those and i found that one of the superintendents from the asylum had written a generalized history of the place so i started there and then he cited a few articles and newspapers so then i went through and i pulled all the newspapers which like newspaper.com or you can do the old-fashioned way and go to the library and pull microfilm. It's, oh, it's tedious, but it's actually kind of fun because you get that machine and you're just sliding through things. So you go kind of old school with that. So I pulled all the newspapers. (laughs) And then from there, I was able to hunt down any kind of repository or archive in the state that I thought might have something. And then Mm -hmm. it was just a lot of digging through the online. Because luckily, a lot of things are digitized. But unfortunately, because it's so time-consuming and tedious to put everything online. I had to go physically into every one of them and kind of dig through all the books that have everything they have. (laughs) So it was uh, mostly like a lot of lists and, you know, just making a giant list of first everything that I think could be somewhere and then Mm -hmm. just cross-checking that and going to every single place I could and calling. And a lot of them are, librarians are so nice. So a lot of times if you call (laughs) and ask, like, I need to get here help me find some steps to get there and but it's really rewarding because there was one archive and they had to go down to the basement <laughs> but Ooh. I had my I had the suspicion that this one thing because it didn't have a good description but the way it said floor plan somewhere in the very bottom is like kind of like a hashtag or whatever and I was like I wonder if it is and you know, you have to call days in advance and arrange for them to pick it up at a certain day and then they have to stand there and watch you while you have it because it's one of their you know, fancy things. So I finally mm-hmm. got them to come, and when they unraveled, it was the complete floor plan of the asylum, and it wow. was the first time I actually saw everything that was in it. And I could have cried. I was so happy. Wow, that's when I saw it had a pool and a, it had a bowling alley. It had a cafe that looked like a '50s diner in the Aww. 1880s. That didn't even exist yet. It had a it had a pie warmer, and I was like, "What's a pie warmer?" Like all these things. It was a fudge warmer. That's what it was. Because when I was uh, defending my thesis, one of the people on my panel kept asking about the fudge warmer. Important things, but it was. And there was salons, and there's you know one side was the males, and one side was the females, and they had massage parlors, and just it was so cool to see where each thing was, and it was a. It really kind of got this thing going because then I had a visual and like it was real I can prove it I can now everybody knows what it looks like it was just really exciting and then to have people dig up boxes and going through so many and then finding photos it was Mm -hmm. really which interestingly there was a around 1900 people started 
Oh, it's so bad. But they started sending postcards with asylums on them. So there what? are some. Oh. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's, I don't know why, but asylums all over the country, they were, here, I'll send you a picture of it. It's a, uh, yeah, pretty much every asylum has a postcard. And I found both of them in Arkansas. And one, I was the intern, not an intern, I was a graduate assistant at the historic Arkansas Museum. So I got to dig in those archives and I found this one. But, uh, oh, wow. And on the back, it has writing, like the person being like, hey, hope you're doing great. And I'm like, why would you choose this postcard? Wow. <laughs> but they're the only ones that are colorized. So that's really interesting. Strange. Yeah. I wonder if this was a way to help supplement the income to, to sustain these places a little bit longer. Since you mentioned that the state funding was so abysmally bad. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge possibility. I know there's a book about just the postcards, but I haven't gotten to it yet. But I really need to mm-hmm. check that out. And I'll send you one more. Ooh. Oh, that's not good. I just clicked on a picture and it said file not found. I need to fix Uh-oh. that. <laughs> it's my website. I got to fix it. But and this is just uh, in the 60s. Whoops. Never mind. Sent that twice. Okay. So about the 60s, like this photo, you can see just kind of it's run down. You know, some oh, of the gosh, windows were boarded yeah. up and they're trying to construct. But, you know, around the turn of the century, they tried to make it a little bit more modern. So they got rid of some of the turrets and then they mm-hmm. you know, tried to make it look less scary. But in the 1800s, they thought that this grand, beautiful facade on, would make it more welcoming to people because they wanted people not mm-hmm. to be afraid to put their loved ones yeah. there. So it's kind of a now we see this, you know, Victorian looking building. It's synonymous with like horror films you know like the scariest uh-huh. silos. yeah but at the time they thought this would be the most welcoming <laughs> image that i people mean when see. i look at this i think that this looks really nice and welcoming but then i remember that my brain is uh poisoned <laughs> because i love halloween and victorian <laughs> yeah same i mean yeah i i remember we watched a little thing on uh how did victorian mansions become associated hmm, yeah. with ghosts and hauntings mm-hmm. and apparently there was a big shift to not do anything that was very victorian looking architecture yeah. wise mm-hmm. um because it, and i forget the reason but it just was associated with old and and spooky um so i could see where they might make that shift for an insane asylum too mm-hmm. and especially given the association with, you know with um what that building is used for yeah um, and it's being spooky when i did visit the people at the state asylum it is built on a a chunk of what would have been the asylum and mm-hmm. they say that there's one building that people won't even go in cuz they're so scared when they walk in and that's where they really? keep like scariest people so like the murderers and like the serial killers and stuff they keep them in that building the scary ones (laughs) oh (laughs) okay yeah they were like yeah this place is totally haunted and i was like hey who can i talk more about that but they didn't Mm -hmm. tell me a whole lot they're like oh yeah the whole campus and it's really interesting also is that where i'm gonna i'll give you a picture real quick it's a lot easier when i'm so is the the picture you just sent is that um it like that's mid- in the 60s it's right okay. when it was about to get destroyed so it's okay the last I, I, <laughs> there are two windows in the building on the left at the top in the roof that make the building look like it has eyes yeah <laughs> <laughs> so this photo is an aerial shot of Little Rock today. So if you're from Arkansas, Markham Street, um, where UAMS is. So there's like the big War Memorial. No, yeah, is it War Memorial? I haven't lived there in so long. Yeah, I think War Memorial. So that's where like the football games, the Razorback games are. 
So the red is, and you can go to my website and see this. So the red is the actual asylum. Oh, wow. Opposed to that whole area. So that's like a giant. Yeah. So it's like twice the size of that football field on the left. So it's enormous. So a little farther down, you can see the interstate. Uh Um, So if you go below the football field and a little over right, right where Uh the interstate is, that is where the graveyard would have been. Oh, fascinating. Wow. Wow. So. Yeah, so everything that I read said that they put them in that corner. And when they built that road, it actually has some other implications. So they that part of town was like the Black Wall Street of Little oh, Rock. Cool. So when they went through that, they bulldozed through all the black neighborhoods. And now oh, that's cool. more. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so when we had yeah. the Black Lives Matter protest, people were walking up that interstate. And it was really mm-hmm. symbolic because they didn't want to reroute or they rerouted it so it went through their neighborhoods instead of the white ones. So, but I I'm very interested because they are about to dig up that interstate and redo it. And I am really Ooh. interested to see if Ooh. there are bodies. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, if that's where the cemetery was, you, you haven't think almost surely, right? You haven't heard of any past efforts to relocate those those bodies. Have you? There's a lot of conflicting information, and a lot of it is just based on logic when it comes to extremely poor or, mm. you know, demographics that people don't care much about. They tend mm. to say they moved people, but they didn't. So mm. around the time that the 60s, when all this was going down, they said they moved all the bodies to Benton, which is this town over, which is another part of the state hospital that they built. It's more of a community based hospital Mm -hmm. so there's a memorial there but at this time these would have all been pauper graves they would have just been pits Mm -hmm. and for the people that weren't claimed um so it would have been a lot of work to dig up all the graves that are unmarked to move them so to me i i don't think they did because there's no actual documentation that i could find and other people that i saw that were trying to find showing when they actually tried or if they excavated the whole area. So it's very, very possible that they didn't. Okay. Because there's also, I worked at a library that's on other side in North Little Rock. And I recently researched this for the podcast and it made me so angry because I didn't know. But there was this little marker in the plaza that said that this used to be a African-American cemetery for the Odd Fellows. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, why did they move? And I assumed that when the interstate came through maybe they moved it or whatever but then i found out they only moved it because they wanted to put a best western there and i'm like that's not even a good hotel so they moved ancient african-american like cemetery just to put a really oh sorry a really crappy hotel (laughs) over it so i was so mad but we we always i was convinced that place was haunted everybody that's ever worked there thought it was haunted and then I realized, mm-hmm. I'm like, they probably didn't move the bodies, like in Poltergeist. And that's probably why it's just so haunted. Because <laughs> at that point, it would have been the 50s, 60s, in the peak yeah. of the rights movement. And Little Rock is home with the Little Rock Nine with the segregation and the National Guard yeah. being called. So I'm like, why would they move the bodies? I basically good uh, sending a message. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's my opinion. It's not proven. It's just my my guess. That's mm-hmm. my educated guess is that they probably maybe moved a few 
that were marked, but there's probably a lot of pauper's graves that have not been found yet. So as a layperson, one of the things that I know about history is that it repeats itself. Uh, so I'm curious if there was anything that you discovered in your research that sort of seemed to be speaking with things that are happening now uh, or, or trends in mental health or or in, uh, in rehabilitation that we see today. I, I do think that it has repeated itself. As far as the retreat part, that happens today. People go into retreats, especially rehabs, you know, the get away from society, kind of detach from everything going on. So I think that idea is still kind of around and is kind of resurging, especially mm-hmm. you see celebrities going off to their beautiful retreat somewhere in Malibu or something. (laughs) So I think that is kind of, and I think also just the, the tragic part, the, the funding, there's never enough funding for mental health. And I think that even today, the state hospitals around the country are struggling to survive and do what they can with all the cuts they're getting. So especially Mm -hmm. in the last, you know, like decade or so, they've been hit with a lot of cuts. And I think at this point, our country in the U.S. especially, we need to be really looking into helping the mentally ill more, especially with the school shootings and all that stuff. They're like, oh, it's mental illness, but then they won't fund anything to help anybody. So it's, yeah. it's um, I think money is just always going to be that cycle. If they would see mm-hmm. what happened and know that's what's going to happen, I think people would. But nobody, nobody listens to historians. It's almost like a, <laughs> if we actually invest in our communities. Mm-hmm. Then we could have better outcomes for people? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Imagine that. Whoa, crazy idea. And a lot of it has to do with stigmas. You know, a lot of people just like to pretend like mental illness isn't a thing and it will go away. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to. It's it's uh it's always gonna be a hot topic, I think, and it really needs Mm -hmm. to be in the forefront. But with everything else going on, of course it's probably gonna get shoved in the background again. But (sighs) Yay, twenty (laughs) twenty. Yay. And just a friendly reminder that it's healthy to talk about mental health. It's healthy to to be mindful of your own mental health. It's okay to take medication if you need it. And it's very healthy to visit a therapist, even if you're doing okay, just as a checkup. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge advocate of therapy. I think we should all have it (laughs) regularly. And especially with, you know, when we talk about the Kirk Wright asylums and they're like, oh, just go out for nature and stuff. That's a really big movement right now, especially with the self-care, you know, Mm -hmm. that you need be able to take care of yourself and relax and enjoy it and not feel guilty about it and Mm -hmm. but also like it's very near near and dear to me you know my sister she's bipolar and she's very active as a you know voice for mental Mm -hmm. illness and NAMI and all that so it's been it just sometimes breaks my heart because if she would have lived in this time like how different her life would be but just how lucky we are to live now where there is medication and it yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely medication doesn't work all the time and it doesn't work the same for everybody so oh, it's definitely yeah it's a very personalized i mean everybody's brain is unique mm-hmm. so your brain is not going to react the same to a medication as the same exact way as maybe your friend or mm-hmm. even your sibling so that's something i would like to say is just you know usually when you're trying out medication i'm on medication myself i take uh sertraline or zoloft um, for various types of anxiety. Um, but I, I, I live with, um, some remnant PTSD and I, I had really bad obsessive compulsive disorder as a child, well, growing up mm-hmm. and I was never, my, my mother never took me to see a therapist. I think she was more worried about, uh, her needs and, um, 
uh, instead of mine. And so I actually had to wait until I was an adult um, to take myself to go see a therapist. And um, I was really nervous about starting medication because um, of the stigma that I lived around in my own household growing up. But once I, you know, I was just at a point where I was like, you know what, I'm doing therapy now, which I'm really grateful for. But, you know, there's only so much it can do for me. And I think I need that extra help. And so I did try different types of medication. You know, your first one isn't going to work right away necessarily. You might have to try several different types. Some might make you feel like crap. There was one that I tried that made me feel like I was just totally out of it and I hated it. I stopped my trial with it very quickly. But once I figured out which one worked the best for me, I mean, I've I I've been asked by doctors like, hey, are you sure you you still need this? And I'm just like, you know what? I'm okay with being on this um, Mm -hmm. like for the rest of my life because the difference between me now versus before my medication is like night and day. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just like my life has improved so much. Um, I don't feel like I'm drugged up. And it just feels like I'm more level-headed and I can think clearer. And I'm more – I'm not as negative. I'm not as distracted – um, overall, I just feel like it, I mean, there's no normal quote normal, but um, I just feel like I feel like more of a like I can live. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's I mean, I it certainly helped me talking about um, my experience with mental health and um, and I just hope that all of our listeners feel comfortable um, speaking to people that they trust. Uh, about any things that they might be going through um, and and not afraid to seek help for it. And just so you all know, if you are struggling financially um, or you're worried about affording mental health care, if you can find a community health center in your area, mm-hmm. um, usually they, they work with low-income people. And some facilities, I know we had one in Pullman, um, some facilities have uh, a sliding scale for fees. So they oh, base yeah. their um, appointment fees on how much you make. So you could essentially theoretically pay nothing if you don't have a job. So um, just uh, do some research in your area, um, see what's around. You can always call it an office and just be like, hey, here's my financial situation. Do you know if I'd be able to you know, figure out something with you or do you know another uh, facility in the area that I could work with to figure out something that I can afford? Mm -hmm. Um, So there are resources out there. There are nonprofits out there. Um, Just, you know, um, if you can do a little research, um, hopefully you can find something that works for you. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I went to college, I didn't realize you're paying for free mental health care, so you should use it. So the first time I really got therapy was in college and it was, it was amazing. And I didn't think, I don't think a lot of people realize that like you should utilize it. It's you're paying for it. You should use it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the first time in your life where you have really good access to mental health care. Mm hmm. And yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying like necessarily like it's the best quality, mm-hmm. but um, it's the first time that I ever had, like, it's like right there in the health center mm-hmm. and I don't have to, either I don't pay anything at all or it's a very small fee mm-hmm. and it's confidential. Like yeah. my parents don't have to know about it. Nobody knows about it. Like it's just me, my decision. Yeah, it was great. 
That was actually why I switched to psychology. Well, that and I was like, I'll never get a job in history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I owe so much to that first. Well, I went through and that's another thing with counselors. It's OK to fire a counselor that's not working for you because you need yes. somebody that works with you. I went through yes. five people. I am a textbook adult child of an alcoholic. So mm-hmm. I'm very good at being like, everything's great. Even though inside I'm like, I'm not okay. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I would convince all these therapists I was fine. And then I finally oh, got yeah. one woman yeah, yeah. that was like, You're full of it. And we're not leaving until you admit to me that you're not okay. And I was like, okay. That was my <laughs> issue too, is that I would I couldn't turn it off mm-hmm. with therapists for a really long time. I couldn't like like stop pretending like there was nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they, it would just be me like having a very boring and normal conversation for an hour, mm-hmm. which is like not helpful and not yeah. useful to them. And like, you know, it's a waste a waste of money for me and not like not what they did their training for, not yeah. not what they not what they're pursuing mm-hmm. in, in their life either. So it wouldn't well, it can, either of us. It can be very scary opening up and and uh, uh, coming to terms with the fact that you're for not sure. OK. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you rip that bandaid off yeah. and it all comes out, you're on the road to recovery. <laughs> Yeah. The first step is admitting you have a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's just talk therapy is also one of the first times it was used was in these asylums, which I found really interesting. Oh, like, wow. Neat. The first time that people are like, maybe if you talked about what's wrong, we'll help you. And I'm like, man, <laughs> it blows my mind. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, be nice to you, like, treat you like a human. And then let's talk yeah. stuff out and get some fresh air. And it just, somebody was like, I'm a genius. You know, it seems so <laughs> common sense now, but they were like, I'm a genius. <laughs> this is, scary. I'm changing the world. And I mean, they're down in the history books is changing the world. So I guess they're right. But uh, so yeah. it, seems so, it seems so obvious, but it yeah. was. Well, now we have uh, different types of uh, therapy, like uh, dialect, di- is it dialectic behavioral therapy? Yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy. Just different methods. Oh, I really like mindfulness. That's been that's been really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's so interesting. I love just the evolution too, and especially in school, I love learning about the different kinds of therapy and then the different kinds of uh, where we got from. Like, if you look at like Freud and Skinner and all them, it's amazing we even got to where we are today. So out off the wall. Yes. Skinner had the Skinner crib where he's like, just leave your baby and it will take care of it. Like the crib fed the baby and then it did not work well. But now we know that you have to touch babies. So we have to have human contact. I'm like, we learned through a lot of mistakes. And that's probably what Mm -hmm. I've learned is that we've made a lot of mistakes and sometimes very tragic mistakes. And a lot of people probably were harmed in these mistakes. But because of everything and everything that happened, Starting from mm-hmm. the asylum movement, we are where we at, or where we we are at. <laughs> can't talk. We are where we are today because of what everybody else went through. So I think exactly part of how when I was writing this is I kind of wanted to write for those people to awesome. kind of show you know as our Kansans like that we tried and we did our part to get where we are mm-hmm. today. And especially because so many people in Arkansas were in these asylums. I think in 1950, it peaked at over 5,000 people. Wow. Wow. And so Arkansas being such a small state that almost anybody that's from Arkansas probably had somebody in their family that was at the asylum at some point. 
So yeah. it was really important. So people knew, you know, knew where their family were and what it was like for them. And yeah, like, so that's the only questions I've gotten so far since publishing is everybody like, can you tell me about my grandma? I'm like, I Aww. will try, but I can't, can't guarantee there's not a whole lot left, but yeah. can give you an idea of what her day would have been like or you know what kind of doctor she would have had i can give you their names so just a little little baby step yeah baby steps into the future yeah. making baby steps well that is all that is all super fascinating keen i'm so glad you were able to share that with us today um if people want to read your research or or look at the work that you're doing right now how could they do that I would just go to ArkansasLunaticAsylum.wordpress.com and my entire research is on there right now and it goes through, it's a digital exhibit. So it's going to just walk you through from, you know, the prelude to mental health care all the way through the downfall and destruction of the asylum. And then it will have a gallery of photos and then also have a giant source page. So if you're interested in Kirkbride Asylums or you're interested in this moral management, there's links to everything. Amazing. And you said that you are publishing a book soon, correct? I am. History Press has taken on this endeavor for their newest book for 2021. So I will be... Writing this less scholarly, so kind of a different perspective. And now I can dive into some of the other topics that I couldn't get into because writing for academia is very, very straightforward. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. writing for panels is even more. You have to write. I don't know if you know this, but when you write for exhibit panels, they want you to aim for like a fifth grade level. So you have to not use words. You have to very simplify it as short and concise as you can make it. So it would be more fun for me to write just how I want to write. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let your voice come through a little more. Oh, yeah. Panel writing is my bane of my existence. I have so much respect (laughs) for historians that do that because I guess I didn't realize how many big words I like to use and. (laughs) <laughs> it would just be constantly people like you need to you need to calm down <laughs> like, <laughs> i did a exhibit it's in the arkansas military museum so we did a pinups and paperbacks exhibit with one of my graduate <laughs> classes and yeah it was really difficult for me to write that because i just like using big words <laughs> well we're really excited for you. And please keep us updated on your book um, so we can share that with our listeners. What do you think is uh, ahead of you in the future regarding your your interest in uh, insane asylum history? Well, right now, my focus is just trying to get this book out because I told them I could get it done by October. So I was... Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like most of it's written. So I'm really working on that. And I... I think after that, I might start branching out into other things I'm interested in. There's a historic house in the town that I just moved into. And it's very historically significant, yet it has no internet presence. So I didn't know it existed until the owner actually reached out to see if I wanted to buy it. Because I'm like throwing around the idea, I want to open a historic bed and breakfast so that I can be a historian, but also do my like program planning and everything that I did before at the library. But uh, mm-hmm. COVID happened, and now you can't get a hospitality loan. So that fell through. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah. still hoping, and I'm still talking with that owner about him recording as an oral history, the history of that building, and then writing a book on it. So it's um, it's really cool. It's a very German town, and this was a Czechoslovakian immigrant. But he okay. built one of the most like prolific brickyards in this area. So pretty much every building from the 1800s that still stands has his bricks. 
And wow. his home was built alongside. He had two freed slaves, like, but they were friends. They weren't people just working mm-hmm. for him. Like he worked really closely with them and they uh, dealt with some issues because the Germans didn't like them. So it's just a very mm. interesting history that I would like to write. Yeah. Podcast. I'm still working on that, trying to trying to make it big. <laughs> cool. I would like well, it to be a job. Uh yeah. Just talk history all the time. That that's the idea. Neat. Well, we certainly love your podcast and uh we love having you on our show and being on your show. Yes. And, and we'd love to see you around here again sometime soon. Oh, yeah, anytime. Absolutely. I can geek out about history any day. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> um so uh last episode we featured our dear friend Chris and Chris uh told us all about the haunted attraction he was opening up. And so we asked you listener about your favorite haunted house haunted attractions and this is what you had to say. Ali says the anticipation of getting scared. I agree with that one. Chris says, going to answer my own question, the fire marshal. <laughs> Susie says Jump scares startle me. I hate it, but love it. Marilyn says, strobe lights set to dizzying. Nat says, I must confess, I've never been to a haunted attraction before. So instead, I'll answer something that is actually fun to see. Uncanny, ghostly stuff like you'd see in scary stories to tell in the dark. Weird ghosts and spirits and animals that are too long or have huge shining eyes or a shadow that moves independently from their body. Or its voice seems to come from the wrong direction. Kina, do you have any especially memorable haunted house experiences? Oh my goodness. Uh, real haunted or just uh, people? We're going for the, like haunted attraction, like attraction? Uh, like like pay, pay for a ticket, go in there and get spooked by somebody in a costume type thing. Yes, I think I haven't been to a huge one yet. I know there's one in San Antonio that's like an abandoned hospital. It's like the 13th floor. Very excited about that. I'm hoping that this COVID mess is contained where I can enjoy the spooks this year, but... We went to a few in Arkansas and there was one, it was a meat factory. So it was very slasher film. It was very scary. But I learned at that time that my husband will use me as a human shield. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. But I didn't feel that. His brother was with me and he used his brother as a shield too. So I didn't take it personally. But okay. okay. (laughs) In a murder slasher situation, I do not stand a chance. Okay. Well. Well, thank goodness those know. are few and far between. Oh, I know. I did go to one haunted chapel, and it's a really, really cool church. And every year they turn it into a haunted house to raise money for the church. And that's I find, really neat, it's kind right? Of I find that so cool. It's got the same class, but they had like this tunnel, and it's the lights that it's turning, so it makes you disoriented, and then you get all the spooks coming at you. So wow! Mm-hmm. In Little Rock, I highly recommend it. But yeah, it was really interesting. Just a church kind of leaning into that. (laughs) That's really cool. Uh, So what do you have for our listeners? What would you like them to share with us between now and our next episode? I'd be interested to know if they know about any Kirkbride asylums in their state. And Mm. if they didn't know about one, if they Google it and find out that there was one that they didn't know about. Because chances are there are, because there's one in almost every single state. Wow. So look into that. Uh, if, if this is something that you're interested in interested in as well, we'd love to hear what you know and what kind of local history you you can find. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can send that to us by uh, g- following us on Twitter at you might love th one the numeral one, or send us an email you might love this podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Kina, can people follow you online anywhere? 
Yeah. Uh, other than your WordPress site, are you on Twitter or anything like that? Oh, yeah. So you can follow my podcast at Historical AF Pod across the board. So I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can email yeah. me if you have any more questions about anything. I'd be happy to talk about history any day. And that's historicalafpod at gmail.com. Well, that's about it for us today. Obviously, we'd like to, uh, before we end, to say a big thank you to our dear friend, Leandra. Thanks, Thanks for, for the, the hand. hand. And of course, uh, this is your reminder that this is a brand new podcast on a brand new feed. And uh, every little bit helps as far as sharing it with your friends, writing reviews, giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever uh, podcatcher you use. And uh, we are just ever so grateful that you're here with us uh, every week. Uh, Anything else to add? Uh, Just take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. It's really important. Some self-compassion and self-care. Take care of yourself. And we'll see you again next week. Just like always, my name's Max. I'm Cassie. I'm Kina. (laughs) And you might love this. Awesome. Yay. Yay! The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content. Hey, Eli, do you want to help me make an improvised fantasy adventure podcast? Hey, Ty, that sounds fun. Do we want to bring in all of our friends to play with us? Nope, just you. Okay, will I be on the whole time? Actually, no, you'll be on for three to six episodes, and then we'll bring on another guest. Okay, is one of us going to be the main character? Nope, you're all just going to be side characters in a larger story. Okay, but this podcast is going to be hard to find, right? Nope, just look up Side Character Quest on whatever podcast app you like, or just go to sidecharacterquest.com. Okay, but you promise not to kill my character, right? No promises. Uh, oh no. (laughs)